0: This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has work scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So, hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you Under the Yellow Tape. This episode of Under the Yellow Tape is brought to you by Sheepdog Java Coffee Company. The Sheepdog, the Sentinel, protecting the flock while it sleeps, keeping the wolves at bay. The Sheepdog never questions why, it simply does its job with honor and vigilance. The Sheepdogs in everyday life are your first responders. On the job 24/7, keeping watch while your family lives the American dream. The men and women of our armed forces our nurses and firefighters, our paramedics, laboratory scientists, and of course, our police officers. These professionals work tirelessly day in and day out to keep your world safe, healthy, and whole. It's really not a job, it's a calling. Now we are honored to serve them. Introducing Sheepdog Java. We're more than just a coffee company. Sure, our specialty blends will help folks like you create the finest cup of coffee you've tasted, But what's even more special is that we're partnering with American Valor Foundation through the Chris Kyle Memorial Benefit to help fund training and professional development for first responders nationwide. We know training budgets are tight. Sheepdog Java will reinvest in your first responders, helping fund and create training courses so they can operate at the highest level in order to keep you, your family, and your community safe. So join the pack Try Sheepdog Java today in support of your first responders and enjoy each cup with peace of mind. For more information, check us out at sheepdogjava.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape.
1: My name is Howie Ryan, and I'm your host. I want to welcome you back. We've had a little break here. Again, we have to, every once in a while, we've got to go to work, if you know what I mean, and do other life things, and they get in the way, and... It's a nice break, but I felt today we had to come back and we have to talk about the trial that just concluded. So today is the 23rd of November and just a few days ago, we had the conclusion of the trial in the state of Wisconsin versus Kyle Rittenhouse. About a year ago, October of 2020, we did a episode, it was episode number nine on Under the Yellow Tape, over the shooting that occurred in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and you know, the one in which Kyle Rittenhouse was involved in and ultimately arrested for and charged with. It's, it's interesting. It's been a year, a little more than a year, right? Now the trial begins. The prosecution and the defense have had a year to prepare for this trial. When you have an incident like this, what you have is an investigation, what you hope to be a comprehensive investigation done by investigators. Okay, Investigations should not be done by attorneys. They should be done by investigators. And then what happens is those investigators bring the results of their investigation to the prosecuting attorneys, district attorney, prosecutor, whatever, whatever the actual title is, depending on where you are. And when they do that, they review it. Now, the idea is that they review it, not not having been a part of the investigation, they review it from an objective viewpoint, okay? Free of bias, uh, supposedly. So in this particular case, you had a year, they had a year to prepare for this. And they charged Kyle Rittenhouse with, I believe it was five or six counts. And uh, we're going to go through them. I'm not going to go through the actual case again of, of the shooting on the night of the 25th of August a year ago. You can go back and listen to episode number nine. And I actually, if I urge you to do it, if you want a little rehash of what went on, because we break the shooting down and that's what we do. That's what I do for a living. We do shooting incident reconstructions and we break these things down and we break them down in the dynamic event of the shooting and how it applies to the law. And, um, we kind of go through it piece by piece. We try to do it very objectively. We look at it from the standpoint of the events, the factual events that actually occurred, and the manner in which it would be applied to whatever law of the land wherever it may have occurred. And we did that in episode nine. We got a lot of good feedback from it, and we got a lot of good feedback since since the um, since the verdict, saying, "Wow, you know what? You kind of you nailed it back then." Well it's not that hard to do when you do it all the time. We look at it from a different perspective. What we're gonna talk about today is the other perspective, the perspective that most of you are forced, forced to eat the proverbial shit sandwich that you're forced to eat from the media. And we're gonna talk about what a disgrace the media has become and what they did here and how they got involved and inserted themselves. We're gonna read some quotes from some different people from uh, different sides. And as usual at the end, what we're going to do is say, you make your own opinion. You come to your own opinion. That's, you're all big boys and girls and, and you're quite capable of doing that. And that's what we believe in. I believe in that wholeheartedly. And uh, I think they've run amok in, in what they think you're qualified to believe. And maybe their role in what they believe is their, is their job to frame your opinion, shape your opinion, convince you. And that's, that's a problem we have in this country. I'm sipping a, sorry, I'm sipping my coffee. Yes, by the way, is Sheepdog Java. Um, Wouldn't have it any other way. So Kyle Rittenhouse is involved. He's in the shooting. He shot and killed two individuals and wounded a third. So Joseph Rosenbaum was shot and killed. Anthony Huber was shot and killed. And Gage Grosskreutz, Grosskreutz, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. He was shot and wounded. And he ended up testifying in the trial, which we're going to get into a little bit. His testimony was an eye opener. Let's put it that way. So some of the criticism, well, first of all, Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty. This was not a mistrial. This was a not guilty verdict on all counts, which has set some people in this country on a path of anger, Uh, complaining, angry, um, completely pissed off. And I get it. That's what happens. People get get all kind of twisted out of shape because it didn't go with what they believed. The problem here is this, what people believe or believed, and maybe still believe, a lot of that belief was formed before any of the evidence was actually made public. And you might say to yourself, yeah, well, yeah, we, but we, we've been watching the news. Well, there's your first problem. Okay. There's your first problem. Because the news in this country has become something other than respectable journalism, right? Let's be honest. There, there are still, and I want to say this: there are still respectable journalists out there. There are still people in the field of journalism that are doing a great job, writing objective pieces and putting on news broadcasts that are well, that are very good. Unfortunately, sometimes you have to go to Europe to get them, like BBC. But we often watch what we want to hear, and that's also a problem. So it's not all the fault of the media. You know, you can, you, can, you can blame a drug dealer all day long for providing the drugs, but he's only providing the drugs because there's a demand for the drugs, right? There's people that say, I want this, so uh, they're going to do it. And when you get into, into the business end of things, the drug dealer looks and says, hey, I can sell you this, even though it's wrong, I can still make a profit and you're going to keep coming back to me because it's what you like. Now, people might say, well, this is a pretty shitty analogy, but it's really not. So you're going to watch a certain news network based upon the way they always present. If they're a conservative news network, which there aren't many of, but there are some out there, Fox being the biggest, you're going to go to them every day. You're going to turn them on because they generally say the things that you agree with. And our human nature is to follow that. We, we want to hear that. I want affirmation. I believe this and I want affirmation. So I'm going to go there. If you are left-leaning, well, you have a whole plethora of news outlets that you can choose from because pretty much the rest, not the rest, but most of the rest of the board in in what we what we call media today or news networks are fairly left-leaning. Some are extremely left-leaning and some are outright just ridiculous. But again, you're going to go for that because you want to hear what they have to say because you believe that. So again you're looking for that positive affirmation you know what solidify my beliefs and that's where we get into the whole contextual bias thing which we've talked about in other episodes we feed off of this we don't want any resistance nobody really wants resistance right if i mean if given the choice why would i listen to an opposing view that's what people tend to think why would i do that well you you're not doing it because you don't want the resistance, but the reason you would do it is maybe to learn something else or get a different opinion and maybe expand your, your view of things. You don't necessarily have to agree in the end, but that's part of being an adult. That's called adulting, as we joke. That is having the brain power to get all the information and form your own opinion. But we don't really tend to do that. And if you want to learn how stupid some people are, just take a look at some of their posts. They bear it out. You know, they bear it, from, like we said in earlier episodes, they bear it from the safety of their sofa. Their thumbs go wild, right? Their thumbs are their boxing gloves. That's their pugilistic weapon of choice. My thumb and my texting on my phone, I'm going to blast out this text. Half of it's spelled wrong, minus punctuation, and they sound like they're an idiot. And it happens a lot. And it happened quite a bit in this case. People were railing left and right. You know Kyle Rittenhouse is a murderer. He's this. He's that and the other thing. Okay, you believe that based on what CNN? You, you gotta you gotta realize, folks, if you base your entire opinion on anything and the position and the stance that you're gonna take based on one news network, whether it's Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or whoever it might be. You're going to get challenged, and a lot of times, some of what you're going to say might be correct, and other things are going to be wrong. And they're wrong because you've pigeonholed your your choice of learning material into one thing, and you've accepted it as gospel. and And we see that in this in this particular case quite a bit. Now, there's other things here in this case that are are really worth talking about. We're going to talk about them today. One is the prosecution team decisions they made errors they made and we'll talk about the defense attorney too and where he capitalized on some of this which was the whole thing was pretty amazing um so again it started you know a few weeks ago and the trial you know comes up to its conclusion here the nation was on the edge of its seat right everybody hated a verdict hey was there a verdict somebody asked me earlier that week i think they asked me like i think they i believe it went to the jury on like a tuesday they said hey do you think they'll have a jury uh, tuesday evening late tuesday you think they'll have a verdict wednesday my opinion was i, I don't know But I threw out to some folks, I said, my guess is Friday. They said, why Friday? It's like corporate America, right? You don't send an email out on a Monday or a Friday. Friday, people have already checked out for the weekend. Monday, they're not back into it yet. They're pounding some coffee, hopefully sheepdog java, and trying to get their, their asses jump started for the week. And they're not paying much attention. Tuesday through Thursday is kind of when business gets done, right? Political world. Think about this. If Washington has to give a release of something, they do it on a Friday, late if they can. Release it. People have already checked out. They're gone home. And by Monday, they forgot about that shit. It's over. Or it's not as impactful as it would have been if it was a Wednesday afternoon and they could have beat the shit out of it for three days. So that's kind of where they go with that. So Friday afternoon was a great time to release this verdict. Maybe they've already come to a decision before that. Maybe not. Maybe they really just grind it out in Friday afternoon. They said, All right, we got it. Either way, though, Friday was a good time to let it out because we have a weekend. There's no workers in downtown Kenosha at that point, right? Everybody's home or everybody's off. We can have weekend news networks. We're not going to grind it all day. We have other things to do. People are going to go to do things with their family, their children, sports, soccer, football, baseball, whatever it may be. And it's not going to get as much play. And it didn't, it got a lot, but not as much as it could have. And uh, the civil unrest, The the I, I think the majority of the civil unrest and damage and other crazy things that have happened came from, you know, where you would expect, like Portland, they where they do that thing, um, a city that's been lost, like Atlantis. But they, other than that, Kenosha hasn't burned down yet, as far as I know. I'm sure there have been protesters, which again, we've spoke before. We welcome. Protest. You disagree. Protest. It's your right. It is your right in this country to protest. It is not your right to riot. The night of the shooting, there was a riot. There was rioting, there was burning, there was arson, there was looting, there was robbery, there was other things. And there was a lot of other gunfire as well, which we tend not to talk about. So that gunfire became an issue in the trial. So let's talk a little bit about the trial and the charges. So Kyle Rittenhouse was charged with first degree reckless homicide, first degree reckless endangerment of Richard McGinnis, first degree intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, attempted first degree intentional homicide of Gage uh, Grosskreutz, first degree reckless endangerment um, of safety of an unknown person, I think that's the guy that tried to jump kick his face while he was on the ground, Uh, and possession of a dangerous weapon of a person under 18. Now, here we go. The weapon charge was thrown out by the judge. We'll just jump right into that as we went along. The judge made a comment to the prosecutor saying, listen, I'm not 100% sure that your weapon charge holds water under Wisconsin law. He says, look, it's kind of ambiguous. I'm not sure it actually applies. I'm not actually sure the law makes sense. And I'm kind of looking at it like it doesn't really apply to Kyle Rittenhouse. There was, there was a loophole of the hunting laws and who could own a gun and where they could own it or where they could have it or possess it. And it became the kind of thing where it's like, listen, I'm not sure legally that it actually... We should even put this before the jury because I don't think it applies. And he tossed it. People got pissed. Why did they get pissed? And why did the judge do it? Two different things. The judge said, look, I'm not sure this is an applicable charge in this particular case. Now, people, why were they pissed? Well, they are pissed because they just don't believe the kid should have a gun. And they shouldn't have a gun that night in the city. Now, I'm going to be the first one to tell you. I agree with them. They shouldn't have had a gun in the city that night. What the hell are you doing? You're a 17-year-old kid. I... I, I don't have anything against Kyle Rittenhouse, but I'm also not going to pat him on the back as some kind of hero. You're 17 years old. I want all of you adults out there to think back to when you were 17 and where your brain was, was at, where it was operating. When I was 17, we lived for Friday night, right? You're going out, getting some beers, hanging out with your buds, you know, trying to hook up, doing whatever it was you were doing at 17. At 17, I wasn't slinging M4s and saying, fuck, let's jump in a riot, man. I'd be badass. So the choice is made that night, although maybe not illegal, not great. And you're never going to hear me say, man, you know what? He was, I heard, and I'm going to use this term. He was a warrior, bro. No, actually he's not. He's a 17 year old kid that may have had some good intentions and some questionable intentions. I don't really know what's in his head, but at a massive event of civil unrest like that, to arm yourself with any gun and run around the streets and say, I'm going to protect myself while I do these other things. I'm going to say at your age, it's not a smart move. Because nothing good is going to come from it, as is in the case here. Nothing good came from this. There's no winners here. He's really not a winner in this, pers- per- in this case. I mean, he lived, he survived, and he defended himself. And I'm going to get to that part too. But this was not, this was, this was some bad personal choices. And mommy is being interviewed on TV. Talking about what a great kid he is and everything else. I have, listen, I have no doubt. Maybe he's a nice kid. I have no reason to doubt mommy. But I'm going to question mommy. What are do you doing letting your 17-year-olds whose who's finger's on the pulse here? People say, well, you know, 17-year-olds do what they want. No, actually, not all the time. There are a lot of houses where discipline was the order of the day. Love your children, but discipline them. And teach them to make good choices. Mommy, I'm not sure you won here. I'm not sure you succeeded. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna crush you here on, on the world stage. You did that kind of on your own. Your kid running around, doing what he did, was another indication that maybe you weren't the sharpest parent. I, I don't know anything about daddy, but mommy was giving interviews. Uh, she was heartbroken. Well, part of your heartbreak should be that you raised a kid that decided to make this decision. I will defend Kyle Rittenhouse, in the sense that he had the right to defend himself. In those in those moments, and I will defend that all day long. But I have to start by just saying I don't think his decisions of being there in the manner in which he was was a, was a good one. Now, as the gun charge was thrown out, people were pissed. Now, why were they pissed? Are they pissed that the judge did it? Are they pissed that the law is what it is? That it may not have actually been illegal? Are they just pissed at Kyle Rennaus, or all of the above? And that's kind of where our bias comes in. I talked to somebody the other day who was in, in the legal world and said, there's no way that kid should be not be in jail. Well, what does that mean? Well, he shouldn't have had the gun. Okay. I agree. But the question really becomes, was it illegal? How does his possession of that fire firearm apply to the letter of the law? Or actually, how does the letter of the law apply to him running around with the gun? Is it illegal? Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. The judge saw no. The law is pretty pretty confusing to some people. And some people say, well, you should have let the jury decide. And that's actually not their decision. Maybe the prosecutor should have investigated this a little more a little bit more. Or maybe he was clouded and emotional. But in the end, remember, the judge is the referee, folks. That's the person that looks and says, All right, these are the rules. Everybody's gonna play by the rules. And he saw something here and said, I don't really think this is apply, applies. So he kind of stepped in as that referee and made a decision, right? Like it or not, he made a decision. And a lot of objective legal experts agree with him and say, "Yeah, maybe and and you may see Wisconsin go back and change their law now. That's fine too. But you can't you can't apply laws that you wish were in place to a to a present day case. You have to apply the laws that are in place. That's kind of what he did. As far as the other charges, which he was found all of not guilty of, we talked in the first uh, episode, episode nine, when we talked about this case, that one of the fundamental things, if you look at this as an, if I got handed this case as an expert and said, can you review this? One of the first notes I'm going to make is right prior to him discharging the weapon in multiple places, he's being pursued. He's trying to retreat, flee, whatever you want to call it. He's trying to get away from somebody. Everybody wants to, (laughs) we're going to get into some political comments and the words vigilante. Has been thrown around quite a bit. Um, White supremacist, white supremacy, has been thrown around. The white supremacy thing. I'm just going to remind everybody: a white kid shot three white guys. Okay, Uh, I know Jacob Blake's shooting is is the cause for the civil unrest, but a white guy shot three other white guys, and then all of a sudden, um, it's a racist incident. And they said, well, you know, these other three were standing up for what were they standing up for? We'll get into their backgrounds. If you think these guys are are championing championing the cause of the black community, we'll talk about their backgrounds, and you can tell me how much they're champions for anything. Now, as this case was unfolding, and they talked about criminal backgrounds of these guys, I'm I'm in full agreement. Their backgrounds have nothing to do with this, with the with the investigation of the shooting. Their criminal histories. I I don't want to. I didn't. And you know, when people would bring it up and say, "Well, you know, he shot a kid who was a rape," look, that has nothing to do with the shooting that night because. Rittenhouse didn't know anything about their criminal histories. He just knew that he was being chased and did a pretty decent job of actually explaining that. We'll get into their backgrounds though, because that whole racial incident thing is kind of sketchy to me. People before the trial started, things were being said, right? Joe Biden himself. Now, granted, it was before he was elected president, he made a comment about the kid being a vigilante white supremacist. He said it. It's not a, it's not, you know, it's not bullshit. He actually said it. Not, not good. Not good. Um, politicians should stay out of this shit. Well, it's just my humble opinion. Okay. You make your own opinion on this, but you're running for office and you're going to play on one of these things. You're, you're an opportunist then at that point, because here's the deal. You really don't know the facts. You haven't heard all the evidence. Joe Biden, I know it's been what seems like six lifetimes ago, but he went to law school. Now, uh, we've talked about his mental faculties and and maybe the fact that he's a little spun out, but that's something he shouldn't have said. Kamala Harris making comments after the trial was another thing. She should she should stay out of it. You know, she talks about she talks about her her career as, you know, trying to, for, looking for equity. I mean, you stuck more black people in jail up in the San Francisco area than most people. So I'm not sure what equity you're talking about, or maybe you were a legit prosecutor. Who knows? It's not really for me to say, I'm not from there. But then there are other politicians that were making comments before and after. We'll get into the after in a minute. But how much emotion was out there and being perpetuated by the media prior to the trial even starting. We saw it with George Floyd. We saw emotional juries. We saw jury, potential jury um, intimidation and fear. We saw people saying, you know, well, what would might happen if, if somebody was found not guilty? In this particular case, one of the things that occurred in the trial is a gentleman was accused of following the bus full of jurors. and. The media, the way the media handled that or the comments that the media, you know, made about it was, was. I don't know whether they're um, they're just kind of backing them up, backing other media outlets up, you know, kind of like, hey man, you know what, they're, they're part of us so we're not really going to, we can't really beat them up that much. But the, one of them talked about the, the, the individual who stopped and confronted and saying, well, he run a red light in the vicinity of the jury bus. He ran a red light in the vicinity of the jury bus. What they left out was that he was actually questioning. He said he was told to do it, which the media outlet itself, NBC, later denied. Well, of course, they're going to deny it. What are they going to do? Say, well, yeah, hell yeah. We wanted to follow the jury and get them on film. That opens them up to a potential jury intimidation thing. So that's that's not something they're going to, they're going to give up. But the judge had to make a decision. He banned MSNBC because that's where this guy said he worked for from the courtroom after that point and the media flipped out they were not happy about that at all and they made multiple comments about it um and they never they never took ownership that's the other thing they never ever take ownership so there is a uh, there is an article i'm going to read some of the thing this is something from the columbia i guess columbia journalism review and they talked about media dynamics and they had some statements they wanted to say. And they said, these media dynamics didn't just form the backdrop of the trial, but it inserted themselves into the courtroom. And then they say, though, it may be more accurate to say that Bruce Schroeder, the judge in the case, inserted them. As jury selection began, Schroeder warned potential jurors that most coverage of Rittenhouse's case from, quote, all across the political spectrum had been, quote, written by people who knew nothing and hadn't seen the real evidence as the trial went on. He hit back at media criticism of some of his decisions, most notably banning the use of the word victim to describe the three men that were shot. He then banned anyone from MSNBC News from the courthouse after a a freelancer for the network was caught running a red light in the vicinity of the juror's bus. I want you to look at the wording. You get into like almost like statement analysis of this thing, right? The media dynamics didn't just form the back, backdrop, but they inserted themselves. And then he then they turn around and blame it on the judge, right? The judge did it, and then he he doesn't. They said written by people who had knew nothing. Well, they they make an issue of that. That's actually true. They don't know anything. They haven't seen the evidence, and that was actually true. And I think it was pretty good that he that he did that and warned warned the jury. When you get down to uh the freelancer that's their that's their line after a freelancer for the network was caught running a red light in, in other words, oh he just happened to be in the area and he ran a red light he committed a traffic violation and and uh, you know he blames them you, you forgot the part where he was interviewed. Why wouldn't you put that in there? so the media who wants to talk about media issues in the case likes to do the the reversal here and blame it on the judge or blame it on somebody else. And then, and then, very, very softly, describe the freelancer happened to run a red light, and leave out the part where he might have been talked to by the authorities and, and interviewed. So their their role in this, from the beginning of the trial, actually from way before, from from the night of the shooting on, and then coming all the way up to and including this, was was fraught with probably too much involvement and too much public sway, and and it's a shame because d- these jurors went home at night. They weren't sequestered and locked down somewhere. They could see news, and that's why the judge probably felt the need to say, "Look, you're going to read things by people that don't know, don't know anything. So take it with a grain of salt, and you know, make your own decisions." There's different different news media say different thing. The Chicago Tribune, for example, they say the judge in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial went on a prolonged rant against media criticism of the of the case Wednesday, saying he has followed the law, and any assertions otherwise could be detrimental to the community. Kenosha County Circuit Court Judge Bruce Schroeder began his unusual soliloquy by referencing a recent media report to call the case the most decisive trial in the country. Schroeder, the longest serving circuit judge in Wisconsin, has frequently criticized the media during the case, but he rarely acknowledges the trial's larger significance. Okay. A prolonged rant. Okay. So that's a a criticism. They're not really talking about the media's role and maybe the fact that he has to say something. He has to kind of try to hold them in check. Folks, you're living under a rock if you haven't watched cases going all the way back years, way back. I mean, starting really most notably with Black Lives Matter issue that was formed after the Ferguson, Missouri incident and the role of the media there. <laughs> the If you remember, that's the one where the media outlet or the media personality was standing there saying, you know, everything here seems to be mostly peaceful. Literally behind him is a burning building fully engulfed. And he's trying to sell you this line of shit that everything's okay. These people are just trying to, you know, protest peacefully as they burn shit to the ground. So this judge, you there might be things you didn't like about him. There might be things that legal experts say he shouldn't, should or shouldn't have done, but he had to address this media issue. And it's funny that he did early on, and then later MSNBC is kind of caught following the bus. And he's and they say he doesn't want to acknowledge the trial's larger significance. That's because it's not his job. His job is this trial within this courtroom, the rules of evidence, and the rules of law. That's what he's there to do. He's not here for your social activism bullshit. He's a judge. You know, and he's got to keep you in check because otherwise you're running around untethered off the leash and he's got to let you know, hey, there are rules here. And you're going to have to abide by them somewhat. There are other people involved. And then you get other attorneys, right? So you have another thing going on at the same time. And as, as of this recording, it's still going on, right? Lee Merritt, the famous Lee Merritt, right? He's the, he's the attorney that chases around all the, any case involving a black youth killed by police or anybody else. He's in that circuit. Um, he told CNN, another worthy news network, that the not guilty verdict handed down in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, the teenager who killed two people and shot another during unrest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, was, quote, deeply troubling and very scary for Arbery's family. As the closing statements are expected Monday in the trial of three white men charged in Arbury's killing. It's so similar. Actually, it's not even close. So I don't know why he's saying it's similar. <laughs> it's so similar. The Kyle Rittenhouse case was a case about vigilantism. Actually, it wasn't. I don't see vigilantism at all. Um, This is the case about vigilantism, and I'm hoping that the jury doesn't take the same course as the Rittenhouse jury. What course is that? Maybe looking at evidence? Maybe listening to testimony? I don't know what's going to happen in the Arbery case. We did an episode on that as well. Ahmaud Arbery is not the shining little pumpkin that everybody thinks he is. He's not that nice little kid. But... That's its own set of facts, its own set of testimony, its own set of of uh, evidence. And it's, so it's not similar. It's not similar at all. There's different news outlets that, you know, kind of give different uh, takes. The New York Post, which is not as left as other places, um, they put out, they might have had better success if they sought a lesser charge. I said that all along. You're going in here with basically first-degree murder. First-degree reckless homicide is basically your murder charge. It's, it's way overcharged, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, Post reports, he was found not guilty of all counts in a string of shootings. Lou Shapiro, a state and federal criminal defense attorney in Los Angeles of all places, said the prosecution overshot their case when they presented the argument that Rittenhouse brought a gun to a fist fight. So if you've watched any of the trial and you listened to the first episode, you'll know there was a a substantial amount of gunfire that evening and Gage Grosscrutz was armed. He pointed a gun right at him and we'll talk about his testimony in a minute, talking about that and pointing a gun at him. So it's really not a gun to a fistfight when other guns are involved and that when you're the prosecution and you start saying foolish things like that in front of a jury, you're starting to lose your credibility as an objective, trier. Of what people would think was fact, he said they oversold the case because the prosecution was stuck on this theory that Rittenhouse was this guy out to kill. If you can't get that out of your mind as a prosecutor, you're not going to be able to offer lesser charges because that does not fit that narrative. They oversold it and it backfired. End quote. He's right. An associate uh, John Grossman, an associate professor of law at the University of Wisconsin and the director of the Public Defender Project, said the decision. Not to slap House with the lesser charge of second degree intentional homicide made this case an uphill battle from the start. This goes back to what I said in the beginning. This is a district attorney's office and an assistant prosecutor here who had a year to prep for this. You could have amended charges at any time during this thing. It's not like you, okay, we, we threw the charges out very early on and we stuck with it or we're stuck or we're stuck with it. You actually stuck with it, depending on how the word is, how you say it. They could have changed it. They could have gone out to other legal minds and and got different opinions and said, hey, what do you think? They didn't. They ran with this. Under Wisconsin law, when a defendant raises the issue of self-defense, the prosecution is required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant did not act in self-defense, Gross said. Wisconsin has a mitigating circumstance called unnecessary defensive force. And that reduces first-degree intentional homicide to second-degree intentional homicide. I think the prosecution could have charged that secondary homicide with the mitigating factor that he thought he was entitled to use self-defense, but that his use of force was unreasonable. Ultimately, that was the prosecution's burden as they could not meet the original burden. Think about that. So if you look at first-degree intentional homicide, 940.01, 940.01 first degree intentional homicide. It has one offenses. B. Unnecessary defensive force. Death was caused because the actor believed he or she or another was in imminent danger of death or great bodily harm, and that the force used was unnecessary to defend the endangered person. If either belief was unreasonable, unreason- they didn't go there. They asked for lesser uh, charges at a later at a later point. But you know, you've already put on your show. You put on your presentation to the jury, and that could—I ha- think—that could have a really adverse effect on their view of you as the prosecutor and what it is your intentions are. And I think it really did backfire on them, as these people are saying. I don't, I don't think that went too well for them. So I want to get into some uh, some comments by other people that are legal legal minds. Jonathan Turley, he can—he's a contributor for USA Today. And he is a superior professor of public interest law at George Washington University. He had some very interesting comments. I saw him interviewed one day. And one of the things that he said is, look, the jury, everybody's talking about this jury screwed up. Well, the the people that wanted this kid found guilty are saying it anyways. He had a good point. He said, look, the jury did as designed. The jury is supposed to stand between the government and the citizens, between mob and defendant. And they are tasked with doing a dispassionate justice. It's a great line. He's absolutely right. That's what it's all about. The government can be heavy handed and the citizenry is, is on the other end of some of that. And then remember, you know, going all the way back to one of the most famous speeches is a government of the people for the people, by the people, by the people, for the people. You need, you need to avoid that mob mentality and, and, and not just have that, that, feverish pitch. And the, and the media is doing a lot to hurt that. They're, they're, they, they are creating a mob mentality. He said, the prosecutor witnesses gave, gave testimony for the defense, which was, was, was very telling. They had very little credibility with the jury. He said they would show one, one of the things that he brought up, Turley brought up is the prosecution told the jury in one of their, one of their conversations was they were going to show that Rittenhouse chased Rosenbaum down and shot him from behind. That was actually said. That never happened. And, and when you start thang- saying things like that and it's not happening, you start wondering, what, what is the prosecutor thinking? Is he trying to throw this case? Because there was some, there was some mistakes here that even some of the witnesses who were not attorneys who are looking, scratching their head going, you can't say this. You can't. What are you doing? The other thing is he actually used prosecution witnesses that helped. The defense, I mean, help them big time. Some of the other things that, that the John, Jonathan Turley said, uh, one of his articles, he wrote an article in the USA Today, he said, look, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse increasingly seems like the legal version of the parable of the blind men and the elephant. By only touching discrete parts of the animal, the men describe vastly different animals. In coverage of this trial, one would think that there were parallel trials occurring in Kenosha, Wisconsin. One consensus, however, is emerging. Things were not going well for the prosecution. He wrote this before the verdict came out. But the reason for this developing failure depends greatly on what media you are watching, other than the trial itself. Man, right there. What media you are watching, it's either the product of systemic errors or systemic racism. But it just that's how it was working out in the media. The prosecution stumbled out of the gate in this trial, he wrote. Gage Grosskreutz was the third person to be shot by Rittenhouse. Grosskreutz admitted under cross-examination that Rittenhouse did not shoot him when he had his hands up after their confrontation, as was offered by the prosecution. He admitted that it was only after Grosscritz himself pointed his handgun at Rittenhouse and moved towards him in an advancing move that Rittenhouse fired. When you break it down like that, there's certain things you cannot get around no matter what you want to actually have happen here. If you're an adult with a brain in your head and you have the slightest bit of objectivity and you look at that factor right there, you have to seriously weigh self-defense. There's no way around it you have to at least consider it. Turley said likewise a prosecution witness Ryan Balch testified that one of the other people shot one of one of the other people shot Joseph Rosenbaum said that he intended to kill Rittenhouse. This is a third party witness said he intended to kill him. He heard him saying it. That is pretty powerful stuff. Turley wrote the troubling aspect of this trial was an array of prosecutorial blunders. And in his view, misconduct The prosecution made reference to his silence, meaning his right to remain silent during this thing. Despite a long line of Supreme Court cases saying it's unconstitutional for him to make reference to it in front of the jury, there was evidence that was withheld. There, I'm talking about a, a, a one certain higher quality video from a drone. There was questions as to how the prosecution stated the facts. All of that's troubling in this hot house public opinion. And Turley wrote, I think that pressure did invade the courtroom. I think it affected the prosecution. And quite frankly, he thinks it undermined the prosecution. Turley said, I think they overcharged this case. And he said that from the beginning, they rushed to bring charges against him. And then when the case started to fall apart, they seemed to become more and more desperate and they started to cut corners and make errors. Now, That's Turley. This is a law professor. I don't think he slammed them in a way that was unfair. I think everything he said there was pretty much on the money. They did charge him quick. And you might have to say, why did they do that so fast? Well, pressure. He said it. Pressure got into this thing. Where does pressure come from? It comes from the media. It all starts going back to the media. The media will defend themselves to the end. But the truth of the matter is, they're they're a part of the problem here and they are in they are injecting pressures that we need to be aware of and somehow society as a whole all sides have, have have to put a little pressure on them to stop Turley went on and said the prosecution's own medical expert, Dr. Doug Kelly, appeared to confirm that the forensic evidence of soot and injuries on Rosenbaum's hand could be consistent with Rosenbaum trying to grab the barrel of Rittenhouse's rifle when the gun was fired. Okay. It got worse from there, he said, including a glaring constitutional violation of, in the cross examination of Rittenhouse. By the prosecutor commenting on his decision to remain silent. That's when the judge lost his mind on him. That's the one where the medium says, he scolded the prosecutor. Well, the judge, he says, correctly tore into the prosecutor. Any first year law student knows that you cannot comment on the silence of a Mirandized defendant after an arrest under the Fifth Amendment let alone ignore a court order. And, and a lot of people want to criticize the judge saying, well, you know, you were cranky and you were, you were cantankerous and you, and you you kind of bitch slapped the prosecutor a little bit. Well, apparently they had a conversation about this and he did it anyways. And the judge had had probably had about enough of it and he was going to let him have it. And he did it right in front of everybody. And there's, you know, I guess there's no way around it. That, some, I guess he had to put an end to it because it was happening and the prosecutor was just kind of going off. So the judge said, that's it. You get into the other uh, talk show hosts. I'm going to use that term, talk show host. Somebody like Joy Reid. I got to give Joy Reid credit. I've done this before and people say, why would you give somebody like that credit? I give her a lot of credit. Joy Reid is about building a platform for her celebrity status. Make no mistake about it, folks. She, she has a career in journalism, but today she's not a journalist. She's a talk show host. She's Mari Povich of 2021. She attacked the trial and suggested that Rittenhouse emotional breakdown on the stand when he was crying um, was the greatest, was fraudulent. And her guest, a legal analyst and Georgetown law professor, Paul Butler, called it the greatest performance of his life. He declared Rittenhouse, quote, was well prepared by his defense attorneys to disrupt his image as a trigger happy vigilante who went on a shooting rampage at a Black Lives Matter protest. Think about that. Okay, let's break that one down. This is a Georgetown University law professor who says he was well-prepared by his defense attorneys. You bet your ass he was. That's what they're for, to disrupt his image as a trigger-happy vigilante who went on a shooting rampage at a Black Lives Matter protest. All right. So if in fact he had an image as a trigger-happy vigilante, who gave him that image? The media, right? Is the media because the prosecution didn't do it. They just charged them. The media fueled this, who went on a shooting rampage. I've done a lot of shootings, folks, lots and lots and lots of them. I've seen a lot of ways people do it, how they do it, well, the reasons they do it, and all this. <clears throat> let, me, let me submit something to you, my humble opinion, but it comes with a little bit of experience. If Kyle Rittenhouse was on a shooting rampage, there would have been a lot more people dead. And it wouldn't have just been these three people that chased him around, there would have been a lot more people dead. A shooting rampage so the statement right there from an educated man a law professor at a reputable recognized university with a with a good law school just said that that's his comment see the problem there is he took all of his legal expertise his credibility and everything else and he threw it out a window and 100 percent, he just allowed his emotion to take over And that destroys his credibility. He's not being objective. He's not even close to being objective by saying something like that. That was foolish. But then again, he's on a show with Joy Reid, who's building a platform. And I said, I, I I give her credit. I do. She is about hype. She's about controversy, and she is about you know confrontation. She added Wednesday, quote, "If you want to know why critical race theory exists." The actual law school theory that emphasizes that supposedly colorblind laws in American America often still have racially discriminatory outcomes. Then look no further into the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Like I said before, it's a white guy. Shot three white guys. And you're going to, you, you, sometimes they got to break out a shoehorn to fit it in there, but they're going to fit race into it because they're going to go back to Jacob Blake. But this is why critical race theory is, exists. Critical race theory. See what she just did? The other hot button topic in society. She's like a professional agitator, but she's got a huge platform. She is, she is an MSNBC talk show host. She's not a lawyer. She's never had any other job other than in journalism that we can find. She's not an expert in anything really, but she's very good at what she does and you got to give her credit. She is, she likes to stir the pot and she's good at it. She's got the platform for it. So don't really, don't beat her up. She's doing what she's paid to do on a network that's paid to be biased. So let's get into that. Just the overall media bias, whether it's Fox, right? Whether it's CNN, MSNBC, any of them, not any of them, but most of them. I'm going to, there was a a report done and it's all the way back in 2016. And it's done by a gentleman by the name of Daniel Park. And it is a, looks like a thesis type paper. It's called a senior project presented to the faculty of the Journalism Department, the California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo, in partial fulfillment of the requirements for the degree of Bachelor of Science in Journalism by Daniel Park, March 2016. Media bias, how the bias affects public perceptions of the media and what can be done to further prevent erosion of media public relationship. It's pretty well written and it's a kind of a great... I'm going to put, uh, we'll put the link on show notes so you can read it for yourself. I'm going to go through some of what he wrote here. One of the things he did is a statement of the problem. I'm going to read directly from this. So this is his. Many Americans are angry with the media. Every poll done, before I go any further, remember this is 2016. This has only gotten more relevant today. Many Americans are angry with the media. Every poll done since the 1990s has consistently stated One persisting sentiment among the public the media is biased. Whether the media is perceived as too liberal or too conservative, too restrained or too sensational, the perceptions of the media by the public, publics they serve, are counterproductive. However, it should be noted that their anger with the media is merely a symptom of a larger and complex problem arising from the lack of trust. The trust that is essential for the media to continue functioning as the watchdog of the government has corroded to an alarming point. As Barron in 2004 explains, quote, bias and the resulting skepticism reduce the demand for news. Which leaves the issue of whether profit maximizing news organization, organizations would tolerate bias in their news reports and whether bias would persist with competition among news organizations. The bias perpetuated by the media leaves many people disillusioned and unsatisfied, which culminates into resentment and ultimately cynicism. Cynicism can often I'm sorry, cynicism can and often does negatively affect the media as news consumers who feel as if the media organizations they patronize is untrustworthy are far less likely to continue to purchase from that organization. The impending consequence is essentially the erosion of the news corporation's profits. That's what needs to happen. Unfortunately, he says the consequences of media bias are often overlooked by media practitioners. In fact, many economic models have argued that news organizations, if they are to maximize their profits, should pursue a slanted and partisan coverage of the news. Of course, this further pushes the vast majority of publics who aren't beholden to certain ideological factions away from the medium whose function is to provide unbiased information to the public. Ultimately, and perhaps inevitably, the relationship between the public and the media will have disintegrated to the point where the media will have lost its crucial function as the guardian of public interest. That's in 2016, folks. Think of that. Ultimately, and perhaps inevitably, the relationship between the public and the media will have disintegrated to the point where the media will have lost its crucial function as the guardian of the public interest. I would argue that that's happened. That has happened. And they talked. Uh, he talked a little bit. Uh, the uh, certain ideological factions. Remember, ideology is the goal of media, of media outlets to sway public opinion. Spin is the attempt to produce the story that the public considers memorable. That's a quote too. Ideology is the goal of media outlets to sway public opinion. Isn't that amazing? How we always talked about the ideological problems in the Middle East and the ideological problems wherever. Maybe we have ideological problems in the media because their goal really is to sway public opinion. They have become a profit-driven, well, they are, they have always have been, a profit-driven entity. So if I can get a certain aspect of society to sit in every morning or every evening and watch my news network, well, then I can sell a shitload of commercial time to a large group of people. And you think about it as a business model, maybe it sounded like it was smart, but th- that one of the things that becomes uh, very interesting is that a poll done uh, or research done in, in March, I'm sorry, June of this year, June of 2021, CNN's viewership was down 68%, 68%. And there's, there is speculation that that number has increased almost to 80 I don't know if that's true, but I heard that the other day, but 68% of the one poll, the data showed down 68%. MSNBC was down. A lot of them were down. At points, Fox were down. But right now, another weird thing is in such a media driven society is that Fox right now is reported to be the number one news network. I find that alarming. I find it also shocking. But why? Why do you think that is? Maybe I shouldn't be alarmed or maybe I shouldn't be confused or shocked by it. Maybe the pendulum is swinging. People are just sick and tired of the like Uber left nonsense in the media. They don't want the Uber right either, but where else are they going to go? Maybe that's why it's happening. And if you look in this particular case, Fox was one of the people that were talking about self-defense and people having the right to self-defense. I'm not promoting Fox here. Don't get me wrong. But they were like one of the only voices coming out going, well, do people have the right to defend themselves? Well, apparently a jury of 12 thought they did because that is what occurred. We have... uh Teachers unions, New, state of New Jersey, the NJEA, one of the biggest teachers unions, put out a huge thing talking about how disappointed they were in a verdict. What the hell are you doing? You're a unions for the teachers. You're a labor union for the teachers. You, you should not have an opinion on this. There's a court proceeding for a reason, and that really shouldn't come out. You have people like Kamala Harris that came out and said, the verdict speaks for itself. As many of you know, I've spent the majority of my career trying to make the criminal justice system more equitable. Clearly, there's a lot more work to do. So she's basically saying, I don't like it either. Andrew Cuomo, you got to be kidding me, right? Andrew Cuomo has the balls to make a statement. Andrew, I'm just going to say this to you, my friend. You should probably hide from public shame. You got other issues. You got criminal cases coming up. For you to come out and says, today's verdict is a stain on the soul of America. Again, another person who didn't see the evidence, reviewing the case. But the media will give him the platform. They will give him the floor probably to you know, beat him up too. But that, that's kind of one of the ways this goes. So when you go back to now the shooting here, and again, we talked about the shooting, the dynamics of the shooting in, in episode number nine. So I don't want to beat that up. There is talk about the actual shooting and self-defense. That was Mark Richards was the defense attorney. And I can tell you right now, he's probably the most sought after defense attorney in the state of Wisconsin right now. Thomas Binger, who was the prosecuting attorney, I'm not sure where he's going from here. He, he had a rough road. He made some errors. He made some, some decisions that were, are going to affect his career, I'm sure. But they call the house trial a masterclass in media bias. The whole purpose of this episode has been to talk to you about the anger afterwards. And so many people that are on social media posting about this and talking about this didn't watch the trial. They might have watched snippets here and there or saw highlights on the news, but they didn't watch the whole thing. And I get it; life goes—you know—you got things to do. And and it come—it gets down to the point I really wanted to make here was: is the media has had so much involvement in this instead of reporting on things that happened that day, they're driving the the narrative before things are actually occurring in other words they want you to believe that kyle rittenhouse may be a racist may have white supremacy issues that he is a gun-toting vigilante and this and that if you don't think for a minute that the media had an effect on the george floyd verdict you're not being fair to yourself it had a huge effect we go back to that case, and you could talk about certain things in medical examiner said actual causes of death. What do you actually got found guilty of? Did the media have a role there? Do they have a role here? They tried to have a bigger role here. So that's why you're seeing a lot of people come out on this case in the Kyle Rittenhouse scene, saying, justice won. That's what they're saying, justice won. And some people really believe justice won, meaning, you know what? It, was it really a case of Kyle Rittenhouse versus the state of Wisconsin? Or was it self-defense versus the liberal media? Maybe, maybe there's a case to be made for it was a little of both. And the question of self-defense, after the trial was over and he was acquitted, he actually gave an interview. No, no surprise, it was on Fox News, right? They're the ones that kind of try to speak up on his behalf during the whole thing. So he sure as hell isn't going on Joy Reid's talk show. <laughs> I don't think it was smart to go on Tucker Carlson either, but he did. And, you know, Tucker Carlson asked him some pretty pointed questions. And one of the things that Kyle Rittenhouse said was, if I had been found guilty, that, no, that nobody would have the right to defend themselves anymore. And it was a pretty broad statement. I don't agree with it wholeheartedly, but I do agree with it to a point. I personally believe, having investigated so many shootings, that this was a case of self-defense. And some of you may disagree with me, and that's okay. I come at it objectively but I come at it with a lot of experience in this field and and, and I break that shooting down like I did in episode nine and I talk about it according to the law he's he has the right folks to defend himself at that moment you know they like to talk about the media says well you know the one guy hit him in the shoulder with the, with his the skateboard no he tried to hit him in the head it kind of went up on the top of his shoulder to his head there's that media softening that that description he tried to basically brain him with the with the skateboard he's he's, he's, he's looking to do some damage. When you start tomahawking people with any object in your hand, it's you're, you're trying to do some damage. And the question does does he have the right to defend himself? I believe he did. I believe the defense attorney did the right thing and believed it. I believe the defense attorney was given some help here along the way with the prosecution's witnesses speaking the way they did. So I gave you my opinion. I give you my opinion based on On reviewing this whole thing, you have to make your own opinion and come to the conclusions. The thing I really wanted to talk about, and we did, was the media. Now, let's talk the last thing. I want to just talk about these three gentlemen. Two men lost their lives. And there's a lot of people going around saying, you know, they lost their lives because Kyle Rittenhouse is this or that or this or the other thing. Involved in this shooting investigation, you have to consider the actions of the individuals who were shot and killed or wounded. Joseph Rosenbaum, he chased him down. He made comments about his intention to kill them, which was witnessed by third parties. As he's being chased, a gunshot goes off behind Kyle Rittenhouse, as we talked about in the previous episode. His ability to defend himself at that point while being chased by a mob of people is real. And it has to be protected. Kyle Rittenhouse himself, is not what I'm saying, Kyle Rittenhouse does not have to be protected. Kyle Rittenhouse's right to self-defense must be protected at that point. Anthony Huber, Anthony Huber, he's another one who, again, was chasing him down, right? Anthony Huber is the one with the skateboard over the top of his head coming down on him and he got shot. You can't do that, folks. Law enforcement officers aren't even permitted to do that in the course of their duties, of a course of a lawful arrest. We're not allowed to ilkabong somebody over the head. That's just not accepted. And, and it can't be accepted here. So when that shot was fired into Anthony Huber, again, Kyle Rittenhouse, his, his right to defend himself must be protected. Gage Grosskreutz, well, Gage basically said it himself in his own words on the witness stand. He pointed a gun at him. Sorry, folks. The defense, the prosecutor almost kind of gave a, a, a questioning. It's like, well, why didn't you wait for him to to see what he was going to do? It's the dumbest question I've ever heard. This is from a legal expert, a legal professional. Why in God's name would you ask a stupid question like that? You point the gun at somebody and you're armed yourself. You again, you have the right to defend yourself. Again, also, this is somebody else that was running down the road after him. The third party, the little flying dropkick attempt by that individual. He's lucky he didn't get smoke checked as well because you can't do what he did. But the overcharging here was I'm going to charge him against for his actions against everybody. Well, I know some of you are upset that he was found not guilty, but don't think of Kyle Rittenhouse. Think of an individual's right to self-defense, any individual. You can't hang it on his his stupidity for being out there with a gun because those, those, those rules were were set in stone long before this incident ever happened and if they changed the laws they changed the laws but that law applied the judge threw it out and he's out there not a smart move like i said at first thing not great decision making but he did it so when at the end of the day here what we want to say to you is this we're not here to change your mind i want you to just open your mind i want you to think about it objectively i want you to think about the the dynamics of the events that occurred and the rule of law and ultimately the question is Does Kyle Rittenhouse have the right to self-defense and does this constitute self-defense? The actions of Joseph Rosenbaum chasing him down, actions of Anthony Huber striking him violently over the head and shoulder, the actions of Gage Grotskopf with a gun pointing at him, does he have the right to defend himself from those types of actions? The criminal history of these guys, it's there. Rosenbaum was a child rapist, okay? 11 counts of child molestation. But you know what? It never came up in the trial, and it's a good thing it didn't, because it doesn't matter. Because what we're talking about is the moment Rosenbaum is chasing him, the Rose- moment Rosenbaum reaches for the gun. Anthony Huber, domestic abuse, likes to beat up his girlfriends, strangulation and suffocation. He pled guilty, again in the trial. Not a big, not not something that I want, you can hear. And when you hear all these people that, you know, Gage Grosskurts out there with a with a with a pistol without a permit a handgun. You got to have a concealed carry, right? He didn't have one. They said well, well, he had one, but it was it was it was expired. That means he doesn't have one, folks. He's a member of the People's Revolution, right? Uh, some other crazy group. Th- their actions speak for themselves. Their pasts are something different. And when I heard people as this was going on going, "You know what? He killed a child, rape, screw the guy, I hope he gets found not guilty." No, no. This is where you have to be fair and objective. I'm not I don't want him found not guilty cuz Joseph Rosenbaum was a child molester. I want him found not guilty because he had the right to defend himself in that particular moment. That's my opinion. You make up your mind. You look at it and you decide for yourselves. The biggest thing I want everybody to take out of this is that right to self-defense. The second thing is we have to do something about our media coverage in this country folks. We have to really kind of push for that to be what it's supposed to be, fair, objective, kind of old school reporting the case and and expecting you or hoping that you're an adult enough and smart enough to make your own decisions instead of sitting there all day long and trying to pound you with a narrative so you end up believing what they want you to believe because it's doing a lot of damage to this country and we're losing a lot of people over it and some of these peaceful protests are turning into riots because of it they're firing everybody up we uh, I hope you enjoyed this I hope you got something out of it We looked at uh, some things here in the aftermath, which we normally don't do, but I thought it was important to bring some of it up and um, we'll be back soon. All right. We'll talk soon. Everybody, I want you to have a great Thanksgiving, spend time with your families, Um, have a great holiday and we will talk to you um, when the holiday is over.